Let's talk about Russian mercenaries, and not, for once, solely and specifically about Wagner. Hello, I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow shadows. This podcast of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons like you, and also by the crisis exercise software company Conductor. So we tend to hear a lot about the Wagner mercenary organisation operating in Ukraine, in Africa and elsewhere. And, well, to a degree, it has become something of a, of a bugbear. If you believe certain sources, you'd think that, for example, it is behind pretty much any incident of violence, unrest or, or authoritarianism in Africa, when it's not. And you can sometimes be forgiven for believing that it's about the only force conducting serious offensive operations in Ukraine, which, again, it's not. But anyway, as I said, this is not specifically about Wagner, particularly driven by the news that the gas giant Gazprom is behind a private military company called Patok, which means flow, which is now fighting in Ukraine, possibly alongside Wagner, possibly subordinated to it, but also apparently as a rival, because certainly based on Prigozhin's rather dismissive attitudes towards it, Prigozhin being the man behind Wagner, clearly, that got me thinking more, more generally about the rise of mercenary formations in Russia and quite what this might mean on a, on a bigger scale. Now let's start with a little bit of necessary vocabulary. There are private security companies, PSCs. There are private military companies, PMCs. And then there are mercenaries. And these are not the same. Although, well, in Russia, all things are protean and can be changed. All boundaries are permeable. But in theory... Private security companies, well, they just simply provide security. So everything from close protection teams for VIPs to board metal detector attenders at uh, shopping malls to whatever. Private military companies obviously are at the sharper end. But even then, these are not people who are involved in frontline combat operations. Classic examples would be, for example, maritime security people, the security guards on board ships to try and ensure that they're not hijacked. Or else they may be involved actually in war zones, but essentially providing training or logistical support or, or even uh, security for fixed locations. But they're not going out into the field, or at least they're not meant to. And then mercenaries, well, mercenaries are the true dogs of war, the ones who actually go out and, and do the fighting. And... What we've seen in Russia is actually a case in which PMCs are increasingly becoming mercenary organisations, fighting in, well, Ukraine particularly, but also elsewhere. And even PSCs are beginning to, shall we say, acquire mercenary subsidiaries. So there is clearly a drive to do this. The interesting thing, of course, is that mercenarying would seem to be technically illegal in Russia, and particularly connection with this war. It's one of the truisms we've had. And yet, I actually dug into this, and it's not quite as clear as all that. Usually what people cite is Article 13, Clause 5 of the Russian Constitution. However, if one looks at that, what it uh, says is, and my apologies for the rather lengthy and tedious quote, the creation and activities of public associations whose aims and actions are aimed at a forced change of the fundamental principles of the constitutional system and at violating the integrity of the Russian Federation, at undermining its security, at setting up armed units, and at instigating social, racial, national or religious strife, shall be prohibited. So that line about the prohibition of setting up armed units by public associations would essentially seem to rule out the uh, creation of mercenary units. And yet, you know, contextually speaking, I mean, it is clear that this is all about 
attempts to challenge and undermine the existing political order in the Russian Federation. And, you know, one could argue that that's exactly what these are not doing. Quite the opposite. They are actually acting for the Russian Federation. So I think it's not quite as cut and dried. Other than that, the, the key element is Article 359 of the Russian Criminal Code, which bans mercenarying. Those people who are uh, convicted of organising, training or financing mercenary groups face four to eight years deprivation of liberty. Those people who do so on the basis of an official position, seven to 15 years, and those people who participate in mercenary operations, three to seven years. Well, that seems pretty cut and dried. But there's a little note after that article which says this. A mercenary shall be deemed to mean a person who acts for the purpose of getting a material reward and who is not a citizen of the state in whose armed conflict he participates, who does not reside on a permanent basis on its territory, and who also is not fulfilling official duties. Now, OK, one could say that official duties element perhaps uh, is a way round it. But the main point is this. It's a mercenary is deemed to be someone driven by the prospect of material reward who is not a citizen of the state on whose territory the conflict is taking place. I think that's actually the relevant element. After all, remember that last year Putin pushed through the annexation of swaths of eastern and southeastern Ukraine. Territories that at the time, and still today, the Russians do not control. But nonetheless, according to the Russian state, and thus presumably Russian law, they are Russian territory. So actually, these people are fighting on behalf of the state on Russian territory. Which actually, I think, is a way around that. I mean, look, I don't know if this is the reason for the annexation. But it nonetheless means, and look, I'm no lawyer, this is just my own personal judgment. But I wonder if this could be the literal get-out-of-jail-free clause for those various mercenary organisations, because precisely they are fighting on the, quote, Russian territory. This is not something I've actually seen discussed, but then again, who's actually uh, sad enough actually to go and read the criminal code? But it does suggest that when we talk about this sort of simple, oh, the Russian state bans mercenaries and yet uses them, it's not quite as, as cut and dried as all that. There's also quite a strong historical pedigree to all this. Now, look, all states at different times in their existence use mercenaries and auxiliaries, and that's still true today. I mean, one can look at the antics and activities of what was once called Blackwater, and then it seems to be every time they do something disastrously bad, they end up changing their name, so it became Z, it became Academy. Who knows what it's going to be called by the time this podcast comes out. But anyway, you know these, these were very much the, the foot soldiers of the American military in Iraq and in Afghanistan. So there's a whole variety of, of different sort of mercenary and private military companies which, which are sort of still active today. And in the past, this was much, much more of a feature. You know, states tended to outsource quite often. We can look at Tsarist Russia, we can look at the Soviet Union, and they have in different ways used mercenaries and auxiliaries. Of course, in post-Soviet Russia in the 1990s, this was an even more dramatic process. And in particular, and this has kind of clearly relevance to the whole issue of Patok and so forth, a number of major corporations, particularly ones that had assets in rather unstable territories, particularly in and around the North Caucasus, acquired, within the context of their corporate security forces, elements that we would frankly regard as military. I remember once seeing photo of a, a Mil-24 helicopter gunship, the big brute of, of, of a helicopter, in Gazprom livery. And likewise, I heard tales of a... So we think of it as a motor torpedo boat, but anyway, an, an, an armed, small, fast boat, which was, was part of Lukoil's security forces patrolling, presumably, um, offshore oil rigs and things, maybe in the, in the Black Sea or the Caspian. I don't know exactly where it was located. But the point is that at that time, there was a period in which corporate security forces went beyond what we usually think of 
and were deploying essentially military-style units with military equipment and the like. This did not lead to warlordism, but it could have. It could have if, let's say, the state hadn't, and in this respect we have to rather bizarrely and perversely thank Vladimir Putin, if the state had not begun to, to reassert its power, if a certain degree of, of greater order had not been established. And in that respect, the, the corporate warlordism of the time reflected the weakness of the state. Now, I think that's a crucial difference to what we've got now. After all, there are already people who are writing entertainingly excitable stories about the prospects of coups and the like, particularly relating to Wagner and Prigozhin, this notion that he is going to take his military force and seize power. And, you know, when you add that to news that uh, Gazprom has basically seems to be bankrolling this Patok force, and indeed, as we'll come on to later, it seems to be actually only one of three forces that Gazprom is behind. There is this sense that people are preparing for some kind of apocalyptic post-Putin showdown in which people, everyone will be skirmishing for power, as if Moscow is suddenly mapped to the board of the, the board game Hunter, if anyone knows it. Now, it's true that there has been, after all, a sort of constant process of the rise and then sometimes reincorporation of corporate security. There is an element in which it became, in part, almost a fashion and a prestige statement that you would have your own sort of chunky private security arm. And that applies to whether we're talking about, you know, institutions like RGD, for example, the National Railway System, which actually does have a rather substantial um, security force, or indeed you know, pretty much any of the, of the major ministries. Now, one of the interesting things, though, we have seen since the creation of Roscovardia, the National Guard, which also has FGUP Ochrana, Federal State Unitary Enterprise Guard, which is the largest provider of, of private security in the country. And it has used its, not just its market stake, but perhaps more to the point, Roskvardia's separate role as the institution monitoring and supervising the private security sector. Conflict of interest much? Well, there you go, that's, that's Russia for you. Which means that a lot of its commercial rivals have suddenly found themselves in regulatory trouble with the clear understanding that if they're willing to become subsumed within Ochrana, then magically all their problems will go away. Protection racketeering as a form of business expansion. Um, so, you know, there, there, there has been a, this constant struggle, but yes, there is a lot of private security in Russia. But that does not extend necessarily to the, the, the full, full fat mercenary end of things. You know, we're largely talking about static security guards with more often a, a truncheon or a rubber bullet pistol rather than anything else. And more to the point, the idea that this is going to lead to some kind of future armed squabble for power. Well, there are a whole series of constraints pretty much ensuring that as soon as forces become what you might think of as genuinely armed forces within the country, they are unlikely to be in a position to be deployed in that role. First of all, they are under very, very close scrutiny. There is the FSO, the Federal Protection Service, which is this really ultimate Praetorians around, around the Kremlin who watch this. There is, of course, the FSB, whose military counterintelligence department, the DVKR, is one of the largest within the First Service, which is the, the counterintelligence directorate. And let's be honest, although it's called military counterintelligence, to a large extent, I would suggest, its role is not so much looking for foreign spies within the military as watching the military, and increasingly as the notion of what the military is has expanded to include mercenary formations, so too, I understand, have its operations. So you know, there are a lot of people who are precisely professionally paid to be paranoid who are watching these institutions for any kind of sign that they could be a threat. Secondly, we have to look at just simply the balance of power. These are not large or large forces. And although, yes, one could say that a small force in the right place at the right time can have a disproportionate impact, we need to appreciate just simply how much the odds are stacked against them. You know, Wagner at its peak perhaps had 30,000 fighting men. 
and that includes people who are sort of scattered around the world. Now, it's likely to be 20,000 maximum, of whom most of them, the overwhelming majority, are in Ukraine and not necessarily in a position to get away from them. But take a look at just simply what is stacked in and around Moscow. The military, where they have the 4th Guards Tank Division, the Kantimirovskaya, as well as the 2nd Guards Motor Rifle Division, the Tamanskaya, elements of which, of course, have been and are being cycled through the fighting in Ukraine. But, you know, key structures are still there. And there's a whole collection of other armour units in and around the city, including Spetsnaz. The Roskvardia have the oversized Zhezhinsky Division, as well as all the various um, Amon armed riot police, who are also ones, you know, who have been used in Ukraine, they've been used in Chechnya. I mean, these are to be considered light infantry as well. The FSO controls the Kremlin Guard. The FSB, the Federal Security Service, has special forces in the area. The Interior Ministry has a very large police force. And again, look, okay, these are police, these are not frontline soldiers, but nonetheless, these are armed guys. The whole point is actually that this has been built to be as coup-proofed a system as possible. And this predates Putin, it's worth noting, and this goes back to Soviet times. There was a constant triangulation, making sure that everyone was being watched by someone else who could block and counter them if need be. Beyond that, these mercenary forces are not truly autonomous. They depend on the regular military for their heavy fire support in many cases, their ammunition, hence the degree to which Prigozhin was complaining about the Ministry of Defence because he didn't feel they were providing them with enough, and perhaps most importantly of all, transport. At present, as I say, they are basically locked in the front line. If Prigozhin or someone else wanted to launch a coup, what are they going to do? Are they going to petition the military to fly them to Moscow without giving them a reason? Are they going to actually make their way to Rostov-on-Don and try and buy 20,000 rail tickets one way to Moscow? I mean, it's not that easy. And again, that is, I would suggest, in part deliberate. I mean, look, in, in part it's because actually creating a transport infrastructure, if you're not actually planning on trying to pivot to the capital to stage a coup, is a very expensive and unnecessary luxury for these organisations, but it is also precisely something that gives the state yet further control over their activities. And perhaps most importantly of all, there is no vacuum of power. I mean, these kind of forces can become powerful and effective and dangerous precisely when there is that kind of a vacuum. It's like revolutions. You know, when, when it comes down to it, I think Lenin was absolutely spot on when he said that one of the preconditions for a successful revolution is a critical absence of will on the part of the elite. And indeed, his quote-unquote revolution was not really a revolution. It was a coup d'etat, a seizure of power in a system in which there was a vacuum of power because the two notional sources, the Soviets in the streets, the, the embodiments of the will of the working class, or at least that's how they presented themselves, and the, cons the constitutional order of the provisional government effectively were, were cancelling each other out. Well, that kind of opportunity is unlikely, in my opinion, to emerge, even if, if Putin dies tomorrow. I think we're much, much more likely to get power stitched up behind the scenes, perhaps even before we're told Putin is dead. With the de desire precisely to have as seamless a transfer of power as possible by an elite who actually fear that kind of vacuum of power rather than anything else. So in my opinion, and apologies if I've spent too much time knocking down a straw man, but nonetheless, you know, precisely because it, it is an issue that crops up a lot, I do not see these as either the kind of bodies which could launch a coup or otherwise be used to change the balance of political power, but nor do I think that that's the point. This is not why Prigozhin set, him, set up Wagner. He set up Wagner because essentially the Kremlin told him to. And likewise, it's not why Gazprom is, is backing Patok. So why do I think it is? Well, we have to understand it in its context. This is a Russia that is increasingly becoming an authoritarian mobilization state, one in which Every single individual, every single institution is 
seconded to the war effort. The war is basically becoming the primary organizing principle of Putin's state. In many ways, this ties into a whole fraught body of debate about whether or not Putin's Russia is fascist. Now, I have my concerns about using that term, especially because, frankly, fascism tends to shade into meaning, is it like Nazi Germany and is Putin like Hitler, which actually I, I have a lot of serious problems with. However, as I've said in the past, I do see quite a few connections with Mussolini's rather more sort of populist form of fascism, and in particular Mussolini's dictum. Tutto nello Stato, e niente al di fuori del Stato, nulla contro lo Stato. In other words, everything in the state, nothing outside the state, nothing against the state. I think probably does actually capture a lot of, of Putin's thinking at the moment. So the idea is essentially that you know everyone is subject to conscription of one form or another. And conscription doesn't necessarily mean picking up a rifle and, and heading off to the front. It can mean sending money. It can mean full-throated support of the war effort. And every institution from the education system, which is now geared to or expected to create a, a new generation of proud young little patriots who are not only ready to fight but know how to field strip a Kalashnikov even before they leave school, all the way through to the remainders of the oligarchy and, and big business, you know, are expected to do their bit. And I think this is this is the way we should think about it. In some ways, the parallel may sound like a bizarre parallel, is with so-called Putin's palace, this this great, grand, and frankly rather over-the-top structure at Gelenjik. And it's quite interesting, actually. It was designed by an Italian, Lanfranco Cirillo. There's clearly quite a sort of strong tradition of Russia's autocrats turning to Italians. If you think that the fact that the red brick Kremlin was after all primarily designed and built by Italians whom Ivan the Great brought in because they were the ones at the forefront of military architecture at the time. I mean, there's a great parallels if you look at just, the, for example, the battlements of the Kremlin and compare that with the Sforza Castle in Milan, but also because it, it was fashionable. Anyway, so you have this, this massive palace which has been, well, the estimated cost was $1.3, $1.4 billion dollars. And building started in 2005. And it appears, and to a large extent this has been heavily uh, supported by the investigations of Navalny's Anti-Corruption Foundation and, and others, that you know, what it was funded by was a public initiative which, in effect, passed around the hat and required oligarchs and corporations to stump up money ostensibly in support of Russian healthcare. And look... I suspect that everyone understood when they were being faced with a, a demand that they couldn't refuse, shall we say. And they duly stumped up, and a large portion of this money was instead diverted to build the palace. You know, everyone knew that this was an additional tax. This was a tariff that the state was levying. And likewise now, I think that the parallel is that these days, I think that everyone understands that the state from time to time is going to expect things of you. And that might include standing up and supporting a mercenary organisation even. It's something that regional governors, after all, have already had to deal with, even though it didn't turn out to be probably the most successful of uh, initiatives. What's going to be interesting to see if Alexei Miller, the head of Gazprom, is an outlier, perhaps he's demonstrating his particular loyalty or whatever, or whether this is going to be the start of a trend. Are we going to start seeing private military companies slash mercenary organizations set up by, well, Rosneft? And I must admit, I really don't want to see Igor Sechin with his own private army, um, Vetebe Bank, you know, etc. So I think this is the thing. What we have to appreciate is this, this rise of mercenary formations, which is, after all, feeding into the state's desperate need for more fighting men. I mean, it is clear that although the the new changes in the law to make it much harder for people to evade conscription and mobilization are there in place with the expectation that there will be some need at some point for further mobilizations. Putin is also deeply aware of the political costs, especially before September's local elections. 
So, you know, this is one reason why we have a, a massive publicity campaign with these uh, TV adverts telling people, you know, you're a man, be one. Why not exchange your, your dead-end job as a, a taxi driver or whatever for an exciting and dramatic and uh, quite possibly lethal career in, in the military? Well, this is not going to be enough. So another way of trying to s supplement that is by encouraging corporate uh, various organ organizations to create mercenary forces, trying to put off, again, this is classic Putin, putting off the tough decisions, trying to put off as long as possible the actual requirement, the demand, either to send conscripts to the, to the front or to mobilize more reservists. This is, after all, I think, the importance of the mercenary forces. Yes, they provide an additional source of fighting men on the front. I don't think it's going to be, you know, make a dramatic difference there. But it is more a, a sign of how this state works, a sign that actually Putinism, the essence of Putinism, this sense that you know, ultimately the state has the power to expect everything of everyone, but will try not to overuse that is still at work, but of course the level of demand, the frequency and the reluctance, the de declining reluctance to actually place burdens on everyone from you know, people at the bottom of the system who are coping with shrinking real-term salaries to people at the top who are expected to, say, set up military units or whatever, you know, those demands are becoming more and more exigent all the time. So in some ways, this is, this is how Putinism is responding to the war. It is becoming much more so, much more of itself. Anyway, so that's a sort of general point about what I think we should, we should read into the, the, the rise of new corporate mercenary forces. What I'm going to do in the second half is actually look at more in detail about the whole gamut of mercenary forces which exist and have more recently been stood up. If you're not really interested in that kind of detail, you might want to skip it, or you might want to go to the very end, because I'm sure I'll still have more broad and wonderful insights. Um, but I give you fair warning. But hopefully, I will catch you after the break. Just the usual mid-episode reminder that you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. Its corporate partner and sponsor is Conductor, which provides software for crisis exercises in hybrid warfare, counterterrorism, civil affairs and the like. But you can also support the podcast yourself by going to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. And remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks depending on their tier, as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things Russian. And you can also follow me on Twitter at Mark Galliotti or on Facebook Mark Galliotti on Russia. Now, back to the episode. Now, I'm not for the moment going to pretend that I'm going to present you with an absolutely comprehensive list of every single Russian private military company, private security company, turned mercenary, etc. But really what I want to do is look at some of the key ones and also, in some ways, draw out some broad categories and from those categories make some more general conclusions about what's happening. Of course, the the big daddy of them all is Wagner Group, which is part of Yevgeny Prigozhin's wider Concord Group. And we've got to realise this. I mean, we tend to focus on Wagner as if Wagner is the all-important one. It is not. Now, obviously, at the moment, it is both exceedingly politically important for Prigozhin and exceedingly important more generally because of its role in the fighting, particularly in the meat grinder at Bakhmut. But nonetheless, you know, it is part of a whole ecosystem of hundreds of companies which perform a whole variety of roles from food supplies onwards. But in particular, has come to specialise in, certainly outside of Russia and Ukraine, in what we could think of as authoritarian regime support services. So if one looks at what's happening in Africa, for example, it is not just simply that Wagner may well provide troops to fight jihadist rebels and provide personal security for your VIPs and the like, but you'll probably also be buying Wagner, sorry, Concord political technologists to support your election campaign, quote unquote, to put out propaganda as to why your political rivals are such terrible people. 
you may well also be using some element of Concord to launder your money. And in return, Concord will have got mineral rights, perhaps, to your, your gold or your, your other sort of um, whatever else you've got to offer, quite frankly, and will be kicking back a certain amount of the profit in bribes to you. And so, I mean, in this respect, the whole point about, about Wagner is that it fits into this deeply amoral, but nonetheless market-driven desire. And I think this is important because although it is still active in Africa, it is too often presented as some kind of active measure, some kind of sinister Russian campaign to bring instability, when in fact it's not. To a large extent, it is just simply looking for short-term market opportunities, particularly ones created by, in some ways, what we might think of as the withdrawal of Western support from various countries, and this is very much why it finds itself in places like Mali, because basically the French pulled out their support. And it also reflects the fact that Western companies are often, rightly I should add, hamstrung in their capacity to bid for business by these sort of pesky human rights abuses laws and these anti-corruption laws and the like, whereas Wagner can just roll in and, and, and play the game as it is played locally. So in this respect, just simply Wagner emerged as market-driven, and that also speaks to its role as a military force. Wagner, after all, has its, and I'm, I'm only going to give you a very brief history, I mean, its, its roots were in the Donbass conflict, where it provided deniable forces under the control of some very nasty neo-Nazis and the like, but nonetheless, essentially, the Kremlin wanted muscle, the Kremlin did not want to deploy troops, both for the, the risk internationally, but also the risk domestically that actually the Russian population did not want to see their own soldiers fighting and dying in the Donbass. It was, it's not like Crimea. But then particularly in Syria, it again performed a similar role. Deniability, but deniability towards the Russian population. You know, people were quite happy when they were being sold the Syrian war as some kind of arms-length techno-conflict that all Russia was going to be doing would be sending sort of planes and specialists so that it would be safely bombing and droning the enemy from a nice distance and there wouldn't really be casualties. Once it became clear that in fact the Syrian military was in such a catastrophic state that it needed some kind of backbone inserting and particularly it needed the kinds of forces who could launch ground assaults, which obviously would, would lead to casualties. This is where Wagner came into its own for a while precisely as the force that could and did launch these ground assaults. Now, as the Syrian military became rather more confident and rather more competent over time, the Ministry of Defence, the Russian Ministry of Defence, decided it could dispense with the services of these, frankly, overweening, cocky, and as far as the Russian military is concerned, overpaid mercenaries, and essentially that left Wagner on its own, which led to it reaching its own deals with Damascus, that it could, if it could retake oil and gas facilities, then it would get a share of the profits therefrom, which led it to disastrous clash with the US military at Deir Zor and a, a proper hammering. And again, it's quite notable that at that point, when the Americans could see a force, including Wagner troops, heading towards a, a location where they had their own forces, the Americans got on the deconfliction line to the Russian command cell at the airbase of Meimim and said, in effect, are these your guys? And the Russians replied, in effect, nothing to do with us, mate, at which point the Americans felt absolutely free to hammer them with everything they had, which they did. The point is this, that Wagner was useful for a while, then it was not useful. But clearly the Kremlin still thought that Wagner could be handy and therefore required Prigozhin to keep it in being. And given that a mercenary army is a rather expensive proposition, this is what drove Wagner to increasingly become af active in places like Africa, because he needed gigs to offset the cost of keeping this force in place. So right from the beginning, this is something that is driven by the Kremlin's needs. You know, again, it's part of this, you know, in effect, mobilization state. It's fine with Prigozhin making money off the back of Wagner, but on the other hand, 
it expects Prigozhin to keep Wagner in being. So if he's not actually going out there and finding new contracts, he's having to cover it through his own other businesses. Wagner is, I think, a relatively unusual case, especially the, the way it fits into this wider commercial ecosystem of Prigozhin's Concord business empire. And it's also, in some ways, if you look at it on the ground, there is really a, a bifurcation. There are two Wagners. There is the Wagner of cannon fodder, particularly recruited from the labour camp system, and then there is also the Wagner of veteran professionals, which is actually, by all accounts, quite good. Wagner has the advantage, it seems, of being rather more flexible than the conventional military, which is one of the reasons why it's often sort of held up almost as a, some kind of exemplar for how Russia should be. But in some ways, the point is Wagner can work precisely because it is supported by the regular military. If one looks at others, we, we then actually have private military companies which are beginning to shade more into mercenarying. And I'm going to mention three, but bear in mind there, there are many more. And, you know, each of these may also, you know, perhaps could, would, would challenge my, my characterization. There is, for example, a, a pair called Moran and RSB, which are very established PMCs, have actually a pretty good reputation for a degree of professionalism, were especially involved in things like maritime security. So in other words, you know, again, protecting ships in, in, in dangerous territories and in activities like mine clearing or providing training. And we've seen them, for example, in, in Syria and I think also in Libya performing you know, those, those kind of roles. But increasingly now they are being pressed into a more active role in Ukraine. In other cases, what we have are offshoots of more established companies. For example, I mean, Legat, which is a private security company, again, just so provides in a way the sort of softest level um, of services, now has an offshoot called Vegasy, which actually seems to be providing veteran soldiers for particular missions in Ukraine. Some suggestion that they may be involved in, for example, setting up uh, sniper teams and the like. So you know, what we have are therefore private military companies, which may be either Russian or based in Russia or, you know, essentially have those kind of connections, increasingly now, again, are, are expected to do their bit for the war effort. So once again, this, this is another aspect of the mobilization. It is not that they are now pivoted entirely to simply becoming war fighting instruments. They still seek to do their regular day-to-day -day business. But it would seem to be that either because of the economic opportunities available or because of pressure from the state, and my suspicion is that actually it's a, a mix of the two, both carrot and stick, they are also having to provide some element of their, their overall complement to the war effort. Next, we have private military companies that seem to be very close to, and indeed arguably funded by, or managed by, the Ministry of Defence. And these were set up some time back, and I think in part because of a sense that they wanted to be able to, as it were, do the same things as they could do with Wagner, but without having Prigozhin involved. So we have organisations like Patriot and Sheet Shield, which we've seen not just in Syria, but both have been in Syria, but for example Patriot was in the Central African Republic and so forth. Now, because these are closely linked to the Ministry of Defence, in a way, they don't need to make a profit, but obviously the MOD would rather they at the very least covered their costs. But in some ways, that gives them a, de a degree of freedom. So they have a tendency to be able to recruit better quality soldiers, you know, recently demobilized uh, people from the paratroopers and the naval infantry and the like, because they offer better pay and also better conditions. You know, for example, you can sign up for Patriot just on a six-month contract, Whereas for a long time for Wagner, you actually had to go for a longer contract. So, you know, it actually it is more appealing. But also, quite frankly, it's pretty clear that there is a degree of recruitment when people are still within the services. So, you know, when you know that some suitably talented individual is about to leave the service, that's when the recruiters can, can swoop in. So, you know, these are very much, I think, being held as a kind of a counter to Wagner, but also just in case if Prigozhin truly overreaches, 
then Wagner could actually be stripped from his control, or at least its soldiers, and they could be transferred. So part of me, I think, suggests that, that these are organisations which are also being maintained as potential shells, which could then be slotted around Wagner if, if that particular moment of decision came. But again, these are also at the moment providing sources of you know, relatively small numbers, but relatively competent fighters in Ukraine. And it looks as if the, the Ministry of Defence has actually been trying to expand its repertoire and do so also in, in partnership. Well, no, partnership is perhaps the wrong word, but drawing on the resources of, of rich Russians. The classic example is a force called Redout, Redout, which does seem to be run by the Ministry of Defence. And look, you'll notice how often I'm using words like seem. You have to appreciate the degree to which this is a very, very shady world in which actually being able to sort of track ownerships is, is not that easy and often we're relying on the sort of the balance of opinion rather than anything else. But anyway, Redut does appear to be another one of these Ministry of Defence affiliated PMCs, really operating more as a mercenary force. But there have been su sustained claims that it also receives financial support from two very prominent billionaires close to Putin, one being the metals and energy magnate Alyek Deripaska, and the other one, I think even more interestingly, being Gennady Timchenko. Now, let me just sort of briefly sidebar on Timchenko, because many people aren't quite sure of who he is, because he has a much, much lower profile, a Russian, though he is also has Finnish citizenship, heavily sanctioned by the United States, the UK and Europe. And his background is that he was co-owner of the Gunvor Group, a commodity trading institution, and now is head of the Volga uh, private investment uh, group, which, amongst other things, con controls the Novatek gas firm. And Timchenko is and has been you know, periodically described as being, in effect, Putin's, or one of Putin's anyway, bag men, people who actually sort of organise the money that creates this great sort of shadow wealth portfolio. Now, as I say, I think these days I don't think Putin is actively involved in building up his wealth. He's got enough in any way. When you've got all of Russia as your piggy bank, and when you can't really travel because you're in an international criminal court arrest warrant, frankly, you're not really so concerned about that. I think that now sort of Putin's wealth has, in effect, acquired a life all of its own, and people like Timchenko are, shall we say, the high priests, the very lucrative high priests. I think he's worth $10 billion, I could be wrong. Anyway, of, of this, this cult. But of course, if you are going to benefit from Putin's largesse, then you are likewise also going to be expected to put your hand in your pocket when Putin needs you to. Putin giveth and Putin taketh away. And so, you know, by all accounts, Timchenko and Yeripaska provide financial support, which has gone towards recruiting and arming Redut. So we have, also, so we have this complex of, of defence ministry, private military companies. And it seems funny because in some ways these are also going to be competing with the regular military for qualified recruits. But nonetheless, you know, I think the idea is that this allows the Ministry of Defence also to basically horn in on Wagner's patch. There are also private military companies that actually have, in effect, much more of a political dimension. And the classic example of that is ENOT, which stands for the rather sinisterly anodyne United People's Communal Partnerships. But on the other hand, Yenot is also the Russian word for raccoon. So although they really did not want to lean into this themselves, ENOT is also often known as the raccoons. Now, this, although it essentially operates ostensibly as just another mercenary slash PMC company, has a very, very political dimension and a very unpleasant one too. I mean, it was founded by the, the ultranationalist Igor Mangushev, um, who also, it's worth noting, was one of the founders of the Svetlaya Rus nationalist movement way back in, in 2009, recruited from all kinds of nationalist thugs, Donbass militias and the like. And Mangushev himself, who was 
well, I'll, I'll come on to his death in, in, in a moment, but nonetheless, you know, who basically acquired something of, of a reputation as being one of the most extreme and high profile of the sort of nationalist volunteers in the war, notoriously turning up at a nightclub in 2022 with the skull he claimed was of one of the defenders of the Azov-style works in Mariupol. He also claimed that he was the one who came up with the whole notion of the Z symbol for the war. He claimed many things. Well, on the 4th of February this year, he was shot in the back of the head in Lugansk, died. The claim is that this was uh, obviously a hit, but that it was a hit that was very, very inadequately investigated, and indeed that there were delays in getting him medical treatment which certainly does imply that maybe it wasn't just a rival, but the state itself that decided he had become a little bit too annoying. But the point is, his force, ENOT, does not only sort of obviously provide fighting men. It is quite close to the more extreme wing of the Orthodox Church. And it's worth noting that Mangushev himself actually had worked for Prigozhin. So we're already beginning to get interesting kind of political connectivities here. I mean, although Wagner itself is by no means uh, alien to ultranationalists, I mean, the very name Wagner comes from the initial field commander, Utkin, Colonel Utkin, who, again, I always love this sort of phrase, rather sort of coyly it was put, um, you know, is a fan of the aesthetic of the Third Reich, which is one of the nice ways of saying that basically he's a Nazi. Um, there's an element uh, within Wagner, Rusic, which is absolutely sort of ultra-nationalist, neo-Nazi and such like. But also, in some ways, there's a suggestion that ENOT may well be a kind of a further, even more deniable arm of Wagner. I'm not sure if that, I think that probably overstates it, but it demonstrates the degree to which this is not just something that is driven by economic interests or, for example, the Defence Ministry's desire to have a sort of a fallback alternative to Wagner, you know, it is also a way in which nationalist thugs who want to both make a bit of money but also go and kill people in a cause that uh, they think justifies it can also going to create structures that makes that legitimate. Beyond the, the political dimensions, then, we then have the sort of the new structures, the mobilization structures. So Gazprom, not only does it have Patok, there is also the suggestion that it is behind and funding two other mercenary groups, Fakel, Torch, and Plamia, Flame. We also have the case, as I mentioned, of various regional governors who are being required to stand up units which now technically were then going to become part of the regular military. But you know, there's that kind of element of blurring. You know, if, if you are providing the recruits and the money, then you may well expect to have some degree of control. Now, of course, these forces are not replacing the regular military, which is by any standards vastly larger even than the collective forces of different mercenary and, and volunteer elements. But what it does do is tell us two things. First of all, the degree to which Moscow is still struggling to find troops in order to fight its war. Even with the mobilization campaigns and so forth, it is not able to generate enough to match or even near match the casualties it's taking. Which So that's kind of creating its own kind of deformations to the system, but also opportunities for those who actually want to show that they can be useful or demonstrate their loyalty to the centre. And secondly, obviously a connected point, this is a, a, a true manifestation of the Putinist mobilisation state, but you know, clearly cranked up into a high gear. There is now this expectation that if you want to demonstrate your, your loyalty, your patriotism, if you want the favours of the centre, if you want the continued indulgence of the centre as you embezzle or whatever else, then now is the time also to, to pony up. Now is the time to show that you're, that, you're, that you're useful. And I think this is something that we're going to see much, much more generally. I'm not saying necessarily we're going to see more people setting up mercenary forces, though that's by no means impossible. Instead, it is that... I think we're going to see much more of a sense of, over time, as this war continues, and frankly it looks like this war is going to continue for quite some time, 
the system being one that demands ever greater, well, sacrifices of those who benefited from it. And that's going to be an interesting point, because up to now, again, in so many ways, just as Putin has been very careful to avoid putting too much of a burden on ordinary Russians, letting it slowly accumulate rather than some kind of sudden sort of crashing burden, well, so too, I think, with the Russian elite. That, to a degree, yes, they're unhappy with the situation, but nonetheless, yeah, life's been pretty decent still. One way or the other, you can still get hold of the luxuries. There are still posh restaurants in Moscow, etc., etc. The more the state has to sit hard on them, the more the state has to demand of them, then the more chance that they're going to start getting increasingly disenchanted. Again, we're talking long-term processes. And it's not something that, in my opinion, is ever going to lead to this mythical struggle of, of armed gangs for power. You know, but, but nonetheless, you know, I, th I think this is, this is how a state like, like Putinism has to work in these straitened circumstances. That those same personal relationships, which for so long benefited those people who were able to have some kind of connection to the charmed inner circle, now becomes a burden, now becomes a duty and, and a requirement. And overall, in some ways, what we're talking about is the Grand Prince assembling the Druzhinas. What am I saying? If one goes back to the medieval era, the classic way in which the Russian state, like well, Russian state, um, Muscovy, mobilized forces before there was actually a proper standing army, was precisely that the Grand Prince would send out word to his allies, his subordinates, that it was time for military service. They themselves would assemble their personal retinues, which is the, what the Drujina was, and come and assemble a patchwork army. It was a messy system. It wasn't always successful. Some of the subordinates would probably refuse, claiming one reason or another. There would be disputes over precedence. There would be difficulties in apportioning forces and the resources needed to keep them going. But, the, but in, the, in the absence of a more modern working state, which had a tax base, which could support a standing army, this is the best it could do. The fascinating thing about the, sort of the neo-medieval aspect of late Putinism is that we have a coexistence of the structures of a modern industrial state with a striking degree of ad hocery, monarchic principle, personal relationships being manifest within the power structure. And that obviously applies to the military, we're seeing that very strikingly so, but frankly it applies across the board. So in this respect, and this is my last point, the rise of the mercenary formation in Russia paralleling the much larger existence of a regular military, I think is, is a pretty good metaphor for how Putinism is in some ways neo-medievalism sitting atop the foundations of a proper modern state. And the interesting question will be, will the neo-medievalism really penetrate and in, this, in the process disrupt the modern state? Or, as I think is more likely, once Putin goes, will actually the modern state reassert itself? But uh, that's a long way, alas, in the future. Thanks very much for listening. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well. <laughs>